Please join me. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear. For spirit, one spirit is in this very room, in this very room, in this very room. And so we've opened our lungs in this moment in song. And I invite you to just bring your awareness and bring your energy, the energetic of your being, that, that energy that is endless. Bring it fully into your physical form, into this body temple, into this sanctuary in physical form. And I invite you to bring into your awareness your heart center. And imagine that heart center expanding and breathing, open and receptive, vulnerable, powerful, vibrant, alive, and, and not only physically performing all of the things that this body requires in the most beautiful and exquisite way, but simply allowing us to be a presence of unconditional love upon this planet, duplicating the nature of spirit, the generosity, the creativity, the potency, the beauty, love. And now bringing your awareness down to that core center, a couple inches below your navel point, breathing that in the relaxed belly, activating that divine intuition that lives in our gut, in our core. And so now all three centers of intelligence are activated, lifted, working in tandem, the mosaic of the mind, the heart, and the intuition. As we move into prayer, this sacred invocation is centering prayer. So I know on behalf of each person here in the I am, speaking these words for myself, but knowing that I represent the oneness of life, speaking them for everyone who is in, available to their hearing and open to the experience. And so I know in this moment that this power and presence, this love beauty, this masculine feminine form, this creativity, this expansion that is everywhere we see and look and feel and touch is alive and dynamic in us, through us. We see it in others, we see it wherever we look. That everything is a form of God in expression, this love, beauty and expression, the goddess energy and expression. And so I just give thanks this day, knowing that every good thing continues to support us, guide us and direct us, that this divine intuition becomes more and more and more fine-tuned, that we, we live and have our being in this presence and power. And it has no limits other than what we limit it by our own thinking and capacity. So I say to you that as we invite the highest and the best that we are able to receive, to hold, and to express in this moment, we make ourselves available to that by saying yes, by, by the invitation. And so today is an invitation of love, of health, of vibrancy, of joy, of celebration, that everything that we are struggling with in our lives, the answers and the awarenesses show up in the most amazing and powerful ways, that we are in co-creation, we are in this divine mosaic of life with this force for good, 
love, beauty, beauty, love. For this I give thanks, and knowing this day is blessed in every good way, for, for the, the presence of spirit, the presence of love, beauty that I see before me, I give thanks, knowing that every good thing reveals itself this day as we listen not only to the words, but also listen to ourselves and that higher wisdom self that is speaking and instructing, loving and nurturing. For this I give thanks. I invite you to say with me, and so it is. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, Robin and Cash and Jonathan. Beautiful day. Look at that beautiful picture up there. That's, that's beauty love. Someone asked me, is it love beauty? After the first, first uh, service, is it love beauty or beauty love? I said, well, whatever works for you. He said, well, you, you know, is it, is it alphabetical? <laughs> wow, I hadn't thought about that. It's just two words. Okay, <laughs> we'll do beauty love. <laughs> but it is fascinating how the intellect wants to give things a structure, and, and so we just celebrate it. But that never occurred to me, so I get my act together. It's beauty love. B comes before L in the alphabet. All right. So we're talking about the art of happiness, part two. And you know, when I picked this simple little book up by the Dalai Lama, I thought, well, it's kind of simple. You know, know, it's not really deep. And then I started reading it and I went, oh my gosh, this is such beautiful, beautiful stuff. And it's been, um, so it's wonderful. I opened it up and I told Laura, I said, I could talk about this stuff for a year. It's just so rich and wonderful. And because it is so simple, all the other things that inform it and support it show up more readily. I think that's quite fascinating. You know, it doesn't have to be so complicated. You know, Dr. Ernest Holmes was our founder, not Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> it can be easier, okay? It doesn't have to be hard. Because spirit, the presence of, you know, and, and, and so this idea of, of beauty love that I, I really uh, am training myself into identifying as this divine presence, I think is, is such a wonderful description, and I borrowed from Dr. Michael Beckwith. You know, uh, people come to me frequently, and, and, and the, the word God, the G word, uh, can be a challenge because a lot of us were, had the G word kind of beaten over our heads or over our souls growing up. A lot of punishment and shame and sin and damnation and on and on and on. And, that, and, and what that is is just the evolution of consciousness. I mean, people, ta- people, we all teach from the level of consciousness we're at. So it's not about blaming or shaming and realizing they were bad and wrong. They were, te- they were doing the best they knew how. And we honor it and bless it, and I understand it when you're in that first kingdom of consciousness where, where sin and condemnation and the threat of eternal punishment is very alive for us, which keeps us in line. That's a necessary part of the journey. But I'm, I know that I'm speaking to people in this room that have that had enough of the, the suffering. As they say that, that religion, is, uh, religion is for people who believe in hell, and spirituality is for people that have experienced hell. And I would agree with that as well. So anyway, we're talking about this art of happiness that Dr. Holmes, our founder, said and many of the great metaphysical teachers of the, of, of, of the past and present that our divine right and our divine um, uh, natural state of being is one of freedom and joy. Freedom and joy. When we're living in freedom and joy, we are, we are more in alignment with our true nature. So the Dalai Lama, the, the author in this uh, chapter I'm using today asked the Dalai Lama, are you ever lonely? Anybody here ever lonely? Uh, statistically, they, they say that 50% of people will say on the, that they've measured. So that's a range, give or take a few. 50% of people have been lonely in the last two weeks. So isn't it interesting, uh, this experience of loneliness? 
So Dalai asked him, are you ever lonely? And Dalai Lama said, no. I'm never lonely. And the author said, really? Come on. And he said, no, I'm not. He said, and he said what do you use to, to help? Uh, what are the tools you have in place? What are the practices you have in place so that that's not your experience? And he said, well, he said, I utilize compassion. So what he, what he does in his relationships, wherever the Dalai Lama goes, he doesn't go in looking, looking uh, to be approved of. He doesn't look to have his needs met. He doesn't look at what, what's in this for me. He just shows up and he's completely curious and looks at people and he just, it's like everyone he meets, he recognizes the divinity and the oneness in life and it's, he just brings this vibrancy and sort of this innocence which can, can look kind of, kind of Pollyannish to us in the West that are so sophisticated and sharp and hip and, you know, like everybody's a used car salesman and everybody's got an angle and they want something from us. And he just shows up completely present and vulnerable. But it's a practice. He, didn't, he wasn't raised this way. They, he, said that they, he said that as a young boy, you know, he, he was nurtured in this. He was nurtured in this idea. Lonely people have a real difficult time with self-disclosure. So they don't want to share anything. I mean, one of the outstanding characteristics of addiction is isolation. The picture, by the way, is this monk. This is Matthew Ricard. He's the richest, probably the highest educated Tibetan monk in the world. And he lectures. He gave up everything to become a monk in, with the Dalai Lama. And he's, he's got a wonderful TED Talk. He's got this beautiful French accent. And uh, I've listened to a few of his TED Talks on uh, some of the ideas we're talking about. He, he's done a lot of research with the scientists about measuring brain patterns from meditation and what, what meditation does to the brain. It's beautiful stuff, but it's a lovely picture of him that he has devoted his entire life to the, to the um, development and the transformation of consciousness, his own and, and others. Uh, through communication, if, uh, people lonely people have trouble communicating. If you're going to isolate, probably not a lot of people around to talk to. And they're also very poor listeners because they're so busy doing their reflective listening where you may be talking to them and saying things to them and they can't hear it because they're still spinning in that sense of that, the, as Kelly Kay would say, the little lawyers in your mind, you know, that are arguing for this or that, the whole committee that gets going in there, the chatter. The Dalai Lama says in this picture is a picture of that young man from Bhutan. I used it a couple weeks ago. He's in the, and Bhutan is that nation that is measuring gross national happiness. They don't do gross national product. Gross national happiness. I think we should start that movement here in Edmonton. Measure our gross national happiness. Dalai Lama says within all beings there is a seed of perfection. I mean, is that not what we teach metaphysically? Within us, the divine lives, moves, and has its being. It's there. It's not something we add, it's, but it's something we can reveal. Dr. Holmes said there's never anything that needs to be healed, but something to be revealed. Within all beings, there is a seed of perfection. And however compassion is required, however compassion is required in order to activate that seed which is inherent in our hearts and our minds. So compassion is one of the triggers See, if we understand this, if we know what it looks like, if we know a pathway to it, then, then we can build it. We can build the discipline to train our minds. Two weeks ago, I talked about how he said, there's practices and disciplines to train our minds. You know, I, I talked the first service. I was just full of emotion. I'd gotten a call at one of our members that is near and dear to me. And we don't see, hadn't seen the family for uh, about five years. But we got a call that uh, she was very ill. We went down to Grey Nuns Hospital and uh, visited with Bill Jones and Elise Jones because Holly Jones, Bill's wife and Elise's mom, was very close to making her transition. 
And she, I got a call about an hour before service this morning that Holly had made a transition last night at 2 a.m. in the morning. And Holly had been, she was a brilliant, brilliant woman. There's a video that I've used in a number of talks called The Miracle That Is You, which actually Holly, Holly created. We sell them in the bookstore. And it's a story of how the body heals itself. And I didn't realize how near and dear it was to Holly until I was visiting with Bill. I hadn't realized the struggles that she'd been going through. I think part of the reason that we hadn't seen them is that she'd really been into that sort of uh, uh, intensive um, journey with her own health. And so she made her transition at 2 a.m. But Holly understood at a deep level the energetics of it, the illness and the, and the things that, she, she, that were her teachers in this lifetime really informed her and gave her deeper insight and de- deeper curiosity into the possibilities of transformation. And so she, that became part of her spiritual practice to cultivate that awareness. Whatever we dwell upon, we become. And I think we'll, we'll bring Holly's video back uh, next month and share it because it's such a powerful and brilliant articulation of what I think, how spirit shows up in our lives. So the Dalai Lama began to talk about, in this chapter, the field of merit. The field of merit. And the field of merit are positive imprints on one's mind as a result of positive actions. So our actions in the world create an imprint on our minds. We can re-educate ourselves by taking on practices and, and so that's why devotional practices like uh, affirmative prayer and meditation and mindfulness. You know, we have our crystal bed that we brought back from John of God and Abhijanya. That helps balance the subtle bodies. It, it brings what we would call the chakras or the energy banks of the body back into alignment. So they're all communicating. When they're all communicating, there's a, a clarity and a peace it's the same thing as the labyrinth. It's near and dear to me. I love the spiritual practices. We are having our service on an 11th circuit labyrinth. And when you walk the labyrinth, what happens is the left side and the right side start to communicate. The left side of the brain and the right side. So the linear and the creative are communicating, both firing. Same thing happens with the crystal bed. So different modalities, but the same idea that there's, a, there's this thinking stuff, as Dr. Holmes would say, this thinking stuff that we are immersed in that responds to our nature, responds to our habitual patterns of thinking and being, and always gives back to it, to us, returns back to us what we think into it. Last uh, week, Reverend uh, Dr. Sue Rubin was here, and part of what happened was, um, Laura, my wife Laura and I drove down to Denver to pick up a, a car. A friend of ours was selling a beautiful used vehicle that is, was just, and so to back this up, a number of months ago, um, Laura had the opportunity to drive my vintage vehicle, which is a pickup truck. And, uh, and if you're looking for it, it's now in the archives. It's on display in front of the, the, uh, the garages over at the fourplex. It's a, it's a white Ford sitting over there. But she drove it, and she got out of it, and she said, this thing is a death trap. We've got to get rid of this thing. And I was a bit shocked and I had compassion for her experience in it and, and then I, after I settled down and processed and felt like it wasn't my fault that she was upset which is where I go all the time and I thought this is so cool I'm going to get a different car this is great so um, but we knew it was time and, and so we set the intention did my work said you know alright I'm ready for the right and perfect vehicle at the right and perfect price that, that fits our lifestyle and, and I'm open to whatever that may be 
And I just kept nurturing that idea, nurturing that idea. And then one day, Eileen Flanagan, a good friend of ours that has done a lot of board development and leadership training with us and continues to do so and has become a dear friend and, and a collaborator, said, you know, I'm going to sell my car. And she has this beautiful 1999 Lexus 300RX. And I was driving back, we, we, and I said, well, we'll buy that from you. And uh, so I'd set the intention, and then within a few, a very short period of time, Eileen said, hey, here it is. And I said, what do you want? And she said, well, I'll call the dealer and find out what they want to, for trade-in, and I'll sell it to you for that. I thought, oh, that's a cool deal. So we did that. In fact, it's, it's in such great shape. We're driving through Utah, Wyoming, and you don't know how big the gas tank is. Have you ever done that? You buy a car, and you're making this long trip. You don't know how much gas you got. I'm like, hmm, I hope we don't run out of gas, because we're in Wyoming, and there's nothing. Well, there's rattlesnakes, but other than that, and sand and sagebrush, and all of a sudden we go zipping by this little cottage, this little store, and there's a gas pump out front. I think, oh, probably not working. We pull in, we pull in, and, and um, uh, this guy comes out and he says, uh, brand new car. And I said, yeah, it is. And we filled it up with gas, and I thought it was so cool. But, but so setting an intention and then allowing the infinite to go to work on it and seeing what shows up. So it was the right time and the right place, the right price, the right condition, people that had been taking care of it. and it, Just a beautiful, beautiful um, experience. And then to drive it back. And that whole adventure was, was lovely as well. So the imprints, positive imprints on one's mind as a result of positive actions. So working with both, both aspects of that, continuing to reach for the highest thought possible and nurturing that idea and then letting the infinite provide the form that it takes up. So the fields of merit, there's two fields of merit. The field of the Buddhas, which the, which the Dalai Lama says is to sit with the teacher, just to sit with the teacher and bask in the consciousness, to come together in that collective energy. And there's that transmission that is very, very powerful in the Eastern traditions. Oh, and uh, reading um, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda's autobiography, he talks about sitting with his teacher. There wasn't a whole lot of conversation. There was conversation, but most of the time it was just sitting in the, ener the energetic of it. And that's why sacred space, that's why being in an environment that is lifted up can be so rich and, and powerful. And being around someone that has plowed the ground of consciousness. So that's very much the Eastern tradition. The other field of merit is the field of interaction with other people. So our relationships, how we learn and how we grow and how we interact. So a, a happy and joyful life requires, as the Dalai Lama says, a good, good health. I mean, we all enjoy good health or we don't, but without that, it, life becomes, can be quite a struggle. Material goods and friends. And as the author was talking about this, he, you know, because he's a bit of, an, he, he was a bit hesitant to step into and express his own experience as the Dalai Lama said these things. He was resistant to this idea that we need one another. But in fact, our lives, without, our, without one another, life would not be what it is. I mean, just the clothes we have on. How many people were involved with one of the garments that we're wearing? Somebody had to plant the seeds of, for the cotton or whatever else they make, you know, and I know some of it is plastic. Someone had to drill for the oil. Um, someone then had to take that and shape it into something that could be turned into something that would look like fabric. Someone dyed it, someone cut patterns, someone sewed it, someone put a label on it, someone boxed it and shipped it, someone transported it. You know, how many, how many of the things that we wear and, and, and enjoy come from other countries? But all the things, the totality, the number of hands that go into one piece 
that we wear. It takes, one, it takes all of us. Medical technology, I mean all of it. We're, we are dependent on one another, whether we like it or not. That poet John Donne said, no man is an island, and it's so true. In our friendships. So this whole idea of, of intimacy. So in, in, in the question of intimacy with the Dalai Lama, Uh, he was asked by uh, Dr. Cutler, who was writing the book, interviewing him, a series of interviews. He said, do you, do you miss not having that one special person? Because Buddhist monks do not marry. They don't have partners. They don't get into that, that dance of relationship that so many of us are used to in the West. And once again, his answer was, no, I don't. The people around me fulfill that for me, he said. He talks about that when he was, uh, the threats were going on in um, Tibet, the Chinese were going to invade, you know, he was concerned, he was processing it, worried what's going to happen. And he said, I went back to my room and I, and I talked about it with the man that sweeps the floor. He said, but I've always done that with the people around me. So he found ways to connect with people and process and share his concerns. He said, people who have close friends are more likely to survive heart attacks or major surgeries. They're less likely to develop cancer and they're less likely to develop respiratory infections. So it's interesting, all the things that we can measure in terms, so when we have those, and I know, I know people here that, that, that their lives are thriving, that their age is just a number, but their lives are thriving because they stay in high relationship with others. It, there's a vibrancy in it, there's a reciprocity in it that's quite beautiful. And we get to decide who those people are. So the question becomes, how do we activate intimacy? Well, first of all, we have to learn what intimacy is. And it's different for everybody. Intimacy at whatever level is different for everybody and it's different in cultures and it's different in times. It's different in the ways that, uh, that, uh, that we all interact with it. But we have to understand what it is and how it, how it can impact our lives and how it can be valuable for us. And he goes through a series of examples in the book of different cultures and different times and what intimacy would look like. We can activate it through physical touch by interacting physically with one another. And, and we know how important touch is. They say that a baby later on in the first year of life, if, if uh, touch is removed from them, they can develop all sorts of, they can actually measure the sadness and the sorrow that shows up in their lives. We all need it. We're tripwired for that. There's been a number of studies of how that can impact our lives. To share our, our, our one's innermost self with another, to be able to have someone that we can confide in where it's held as sacred, and to witness it and to have it heard. I mean, and that's, a, you know, that's an age-old process that we've, we've codified and there are certain ways to do that. There are actually people here that, that do coaching and there's therapists and there's prayer partners, but that opportunity to sit with someone and have that heartfelt communication is so life-enhancing and so necessary for us. And then the experience of, of connecting Experience of connecting, not just with one another, but connecting with nature. I mean, this field, this field of beauty love is everywhere. And so whether we're in, and, and, and so these special relationships, I just, there was an article on, uh, on the internet just yesterday, it was about the, the, the Japanese culture. And many of the young people in the Japanese culture are not hooking up with an, a partner. There's just not this impetus to get into partnership the way we would consider a romantic relationship or having this significant one person. But this whole generation's coming along and they're not doing that. They're not reproducing the, the way they anticipate. The patterns are being broken. 
they're finding their, their nurturing and their spiritual food and that emotional um, connection through their friendships rather than this, the, the one specific person. They, they, they project that if it, the pattern continues by 2060, uh, the Japanese population will have decreased about 30%. And then, of course, the generation that says, well, who's going to be supporting us now that we're done being productive? So there's all that. And then it'll all work its way out. But to, 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 to get locked into this one pattern that, we've, we're, that we're less than because we're not in this one specific loving relationship is such a narrow, narrow uh, perspective. And there's nothing wrong with having a loving and beautiful relationship. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. And if we're in that, but not to limit it to that as well. That, that you know, I, I was going out and I forgot about this. I had so many things that I was talking about at the early service. I was really processing a lot about Holly but someone walked up to me and said, uh, how about love wins? And, and um, I have a son who's gay, and, and this person does as well. And for the United States, for the Supreme Court to pass this uh, sanctioning uh, same-sex marriage in 50 states, it's just like, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's like, man, oh man, look at what's going on in the world. Let's celebrate love wherever it shows up. And I, you know, I love and adore my son. I mean, he's just a beautiful young man. And I tell you, he didn't, you know, we didn't, he didn't show up and say, okay, now you're going to be gay. It doesn't work that way. He came up, he came hardwired for that. And I knew when he was a little guy, I thought, oh my gosh. Hmm. I don't think he's going to be, be on the football team or play hockey. <laughs> but I knew that. And so it was just like... And then, you know, and it was foreign for me. I didn't know, you know, I was trying to figure out the words to say. Just keep loving him and nurturing. So, but he was a wonderful, he's been and continues to be, but it was a challenge to figure out, okay, because it would have been so easy if he was just a mini me. (laughs) Oh, I know what you're going to do next. He didn't do any of that stuff. He would love to dress up in his sister's dresses and get all the makeup on and And so I thought maybe he was going to be a stand-up comedian. I thought that, well, maybe he just... But, but for that to happen, and so that is consciousness pressing. I mean, even the, um, even, the, um, even the Caitlyn Jenner stuff. I mean, God bless that guy. Here's an Olympic champion, the epitome of manhood, the decathlete champion. And all of a sudden he says, you know, I feel more like a, a woman than I do a man. What does that do for us? Well, it enrages some people. It scares the heck out of some people. But what it's speaking to is this, this idea that love wants to be expressed. Wherever love shows up, it wants to be expressed. And I am so glad that is not my path. I have my own path. I have my own challenges, but it's not that. And I'm like, and, 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 I, and I support him, and I support or her, her uh, but, but him and her. But... And I honor his decision and his courage to take a stand, but it's really as if this, collectively, it's like we got to break down all these, these boxes of thinking and ways of being so that something new can show up. We got to tear, I mean, it's all got to, like David Leonard, my buddy David Leonard, I just adored uh, Reverend David Leonard. He's in Huntsville, Alabama. He's one, been one of my friends and mentors since I got into ministry. And we talk about our organization, CSL. It was RSI for a while, Religious Science International. Now it's Centers for Spiritual Living. And David, every time I get together, he says, the whole thing's got to fall apart. 
The whole thing's got to implode so something new can be born. And so David's pushing that envelope, and there's a lot of people that just want to maintain this. You know, if you were here on Friday night, you're a lot of stories of the past. And, and the past is a beautiful thing, too. So somewhere in between David and somewhere in there between hanging on to the past is the evolution happening. So it's a beautiful thing to be part of, and I'm so blessed to have a perspective and a teaching that says, you know, it's all God. All of it is, oh, sorry, all of it is beauty love. I'm not using God anymore. It's beauty love. Beauty love. Because it's a field. It's a field. It's a quantum field that we are immersed in. It's not a man. It's not a woman. It's both male and female, but it is everything and everywhere. So what, what, coming back on our, our road trip, I got to tell you, I healed my consciousness around coming over the border too because the first time we came across, second time, I came with Laura. We brought our little Jetta car with us and we didn't know anything about importing and exporting a vehicle. So we come to the border and we packed to the gills with this little Jetta, little black Jetta that, that we drove up when I, I came up for six months and then we finally got settled in the States and we're driving over the border. Got there and this guy said, okay, looked at us. He said, you're clear to go, but the car's got to stay here. So where the hell are we going without a car? Well, you can walk. I'm like, oh. Well, we had to drive back to Osborne. It was Good Friday. We wanted to be back for Easter. We had to drive to Osborne, Idaho to get the pink slip so we could get across the border because they wouldn't let them fax the pink slip. That's the, you know, the title for the car. We'd had it paid off, but we didn't have the paperwork because we just paid it off before we left. Had to get to a Bank of America, and the only one, there's none in Montana, we found out, but there's one in Idaho. So we drove there. So it was a bit of a challenge and a disappointment and they seemed arbitrary and capricious to say the least. So we did all the paperwork. We got up in the morning at Great Falls, Montana. I had all the paperwork together. We did an affirmative prayer to get across the border without any problems. And we were across both the, the U.S. border. They have to, you have to export a vehicle and then you can import it within a half an hour. But I thought, wow, this is so cool. We've healed this. Of course, I had the paperwork too because I was, knew what I was doing. But it was a beautiful thing to see happen. It was a beautiful experience to watch how when you do the preparation, and, that, and part of it was just simply jumping through the hoops and understanding what it takes, but it was a beautiful demonstration. I thought, oh good, we've, we've completed this cycle of resistance. So I wanna, I wanna show you on the way back, we listened to this wonderful book by David McCullough, this beautiful author. And he read it to us, so we listened to it. So if you ask, you ask me how I read so many books, a lot of times I listen to the books. About Orville and Wilbur Wright. And there they are up there. Uh, Wilbur has the bald head and, and uh, Orville has the hair and the mustache. And these are the two guys that first flew. And their story is a young man growing up in grammar school. The story we heard was these guys were bike mechanics and they built bikes and then one day they went to Kitty Hawk. Like Kitty Hawk is just down the street. And they flew a plane, you know. Because that's the story we got. And, but this, their story was one of diligence and commitment and devotion. You talk about intimacy. They were so supportive of one another. They would not make decisions. Whenever they made a decision, they'd always think about the other one. How will Wilbur respond to this? How will Orville respond to this? And they kept, and they were so committed to this idea of 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 intentional flight, because dirigibles and balloons were popular then. But they said, no, we want to be able to fly where we want to fly at any given point in time. So they worked with gliders, they worked with gliders, they figured out pitch, and they watched observed birds, how birds could just float on the currents. Over thousands and thousands of hours, they built their own wind tunnel, and they took pieces of, of um, 
hacksaw blades and they bent them into certain shapes with certain twists on them and they would run them through this wind tunnel. They had an electric fan, they would blow through this wind tunnel and they would watch the lift and how it would affect them and they figured out the curvature of the wings. I mean, hours and hours. And then the propellers, they hand carved the propellers and they figured it out. I mean, can you imagine hand carving a propeller? I mean, I'm a woodworker. That's gonna take you a bit. But they, the, the things that they did and the support and then they, and, they, and they finally, and what happened as well for these guys was that, that uh, they, they had, and they had all these doubters. They had all these people that said, you guys are frauds, you're con men, you're never gonna do this, it won't happen, we're not just, and they just kept working and working and supporting one another and, and building the next innovation and their sister Catherine was so devoted, so the three of them, and in Mary Madeline Morrissey's uh, um, um, uh, Prosperity Plus Two, she talks about their father. Their father was a, a traditional minister, and she talks about that he wasn't supportive. He was absolutely supportive. He supported these guys. The end of the book is, is, is Oliver flying this plane, and he took his dad for a ride. And his dad just kept screaming, higher, higher, uh, higher, Oliver, higher. They finally took dad up for a flight. Well, it was just beautiful. I mean, there's Kate. Here's the next slide is Orville, Kate, and Wilbur. And Kate, now look at that. She's a babe, huh, with that hat on? Look at that. <laughs> but she was totally devoted to her brothers. When Orville took a really bad, because these guys crashed. They didn't just always fly and land. They crashed. And when he, when he crashed, he was at a demonstration because the French, the U.S. didn't even want to deal with this. And so the French said, come on over here. So they went to France and they were immersed and wined and dined and he met all these great French people and he collaborated with them. And then finally they, the U.S. said, hey, there might be something to this flight because the consciousness wasn't there yet. What do you mean you're going to fly in an airplane? That's ridiculous. And finally the U.S. got a hold of it because they really wanted to give it to their country that they loved. And they came back, and, and Orville was doing a demonstration with this young military man. They crashed. The young military man was, was uh, killed. And Oliver broke his uh, pelvis. He broke ribs. He was just really, really in a lot of pain for a long time. He had a limp the rest of his life. And Catherine, or Kate as they called her, took care of him, nursed him back to health, slept with him in the hospital room, but completely devoted to them. These three were like little, there were three were like angels that came to, but they were just devoted to one another. And it's such an example of intimacy. It's such an, an example. I mean, they were as if, I, I really feel like these three souls got together and said, let's come together and create something beautiful and gift this to this beautiful world. This is a picture of one of their planes you know, that they developed when they, they finally uh, could uh, sit in it because they laid in it for a long time. And they developed all kinds of little things. And all of their patents were challenged. People stole their stuff. Every lawsuit, because Wilbur was really good with this. Wilbur was really sharp. When he was over in France, there was no texting. There was no email. There was snail mail. And, he got, and, and Kate and Oliver got really nervous that Wilbur was going to be taken advantage of. People were going to steal their technology. They weren't going to have their patents honored. They were in all these things. And Wilbur finally wrote back and said, I got this. Chill out. Nobody's stealing nothing from us. And there were people trying to steal everything. They had a company that wanted to represent them and they wanted percentage after percentage after percentage. And he just said, nope, 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 nope. You guys sell, you guys sell the foreign stuff, you get 20% of the sale, you get a commission. And they wanted 20% on all the patents and all the news. He said, nope, we're not doing any of that. 
They just would not have it. And they weren't motivated by money, but they were motivated by a vision. And Wilbur just stayed grounded in it. He stayed true to himself. It's an amazing, beautiful story of spirituality and of vision, of being called by a vision. And they prospered. They prospered. They said if they had been ambitious, uh, economically ambitious, they would, have, they would have made millions more. But that wasn't their number one priority. They wanted to gift humanity with something. Look at all of us now. We get on an airplane, we fly everywhere we want. But this is part of their legacy. This is part of their devotion and commitment to the greater yet to be. It's innovation. Yeah, we got problems on the planet. We got wars breaking out, but it is innovation. It is that, that idea that I don't know, but something within me does know. And the more that I can clean up my own pathways of awareness and consciousness and intuition so that that greater yet to be, that intuition can inform me, the better off we all are. The Dalai Lama said, we need only courageously expand our concept of intimacy to include all other forms that surround us. So it's great to practice with one, but to understand that we are intimately connected to everything. Everyone, to not limit it. Even the people that we don't like, even the people that are doing evil things on the planet, to realize that there's a divinity within them and it's asleep. And that's a challenge, because they tempt us not to love them, don't they? so easy not to love and then yet when we get when we spin into anger and resentment it doesn't mean we have to agree with them but we can simply say no that doesn't go here i don't agree with that i don't participate in that and despite what you're doing i know that there's something alive in you that is dynamic and, and pure and clean even if it hasn't been developed in them but to think any other way and, and and so it takes time to process that that's part of the journey we don't just jump from experience to all of a sudden it's unconditional love sometimes it is anger and resentment frustration, hatred. But we don't have to live there. What we see happening, playing out on this planet, like this young man that went into the church and, and killed all these people a couple weeks ago. He got stuck in resentment and anger and hatred and wanted to destroy. The divinity is still alive in him. It's just not activated. And so there's no... And, and so it's a, the loss of whatever unique genius that young man has has been wasted. So I'm so, so grateful to, to have a teaching and to have a philosophy and have a pathway that continues to nurture that greater yet to be within myself and to have practices in my life so that I gotta bring compassion to this. It's my opportunity to bring compassion to this. So Howard Cutler, leave you with this. He said, if what we seek in life is happiness and intimacy is an important ingredient of a happier life, then it clearly makes sense to conduct our lives on the basis of a model of intimacy that includes as many forms of connection with others as possible. With as many forms of life as possible. With trees, we've got a beautiful tree in front of our house, it's full of leaves right now, and we got home and we have this, it's full of magpies. Anybody here ever run into a magpie? Because they're, they're quite active and smart and dynamic. Anyway, we got home and the magpie had died and the carcass had been consumed by something, which is how nature does it, and, leaf, and the, the wings were laying there. And so for two days after getting home, I'm like, oh, a magpie died. And so the, the magpies would come down and they would do a little ritual around the wings because they knew one of their buddies was dead. One of the flock had died. And so I let the, I let the, the wings uh, lay there for a couple days and the neighborhood dogs would come by and sniff it. And when the dogs would come by, the other magpies would just go crazy. Ah, you know, and there would be all this activity because this was their ritual. They were mourning the passing, of the story I'm making up. 
But after a couple of days, I realized, okay, the magpies seemed to stop flying down and, and, and singing over it. So I went out with a pair of gloves and you know, t- took it away. But they had their time to... But we're connected to all that. And you know, the intelligence, the infinite divine intelligence informing and, is, and supporting all of us. So to limit our capacity to be intimate with just the significant one really does close us down. And when we read the newspaper and we see the discord and the, and the hatred being played out in the world, it really is a call for prayer. It, it really is to understand that, you know what? I showed up here at this point in time to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So how can I use the consciousness and the choices I've been given to give something to bring a different perspective and a different knowing about this? Because that's powerful. It's powerful. Our consciousness is so amazingly powerful. And the more we align ourselves with our true nature, which is already within us, it doesn't have to be added to us. No one can give it to us. It's just an awakening, a revelation. It's wonderful. So to do my own filtering and my own housekeeping so that I'm not standing there angry and frustrated and wanting to hurt somebody because what's happening I disagree with, but to realize, you know what, I don't stand for this. And I know the greater yet to be is being revealed. And how I can contribute and be of support to my fellow man to myself, to the people I love, and what I hold precious continues to be, I continue to be informed of that, to make ourselves available to that. And then the greater yet to be, this greater good that is seeking expression can happen. The Wright brothers, one of the things that just supported me and was such an inspiration was, was Wilbur's consciousness. In spite of all the, the criticism and the struggles and, the, and, the, and all of the accusations that went on, he just kept doing the work. And he would not fly that plane until he was ready. The government people would say, well, we need to have a demonstration next week. And he'd go, no. Well, when will we have one? He said, well, when I'm ready. We're not ready yet did everything he possibly could to assure success, did everything he possibly could do physically and, and, and built that consciousness that provided what we celebrate today. But it was his devotion and it was, he was not influenced by outside conditions and the pressures and the, and the temptations. And it's such a beautiful example of consciousness playing itself out. So I think it's a beautiful opportunity for you and I, myself, this week to look where I limit my levels of intimacy, of connection with people. In, in, the, in the most wholesome and beautiful and supportive ways possible. You know, like this, this, this beautiful mom and her baby coming to church. I mean, I have such compassion for that. Did you see the, the university professor with, that they brought their children and the child was acting up? And I was sincere. I would have, I, I would have loved to hold the baby. It probably would have scared the heck out of her. But the professor held the baby while he did his lecture. Because we've had this happen many times here where children... They just don't want to sit here. Can you imagine that? You're three years old, don't want to listen to a lecture for 45 minutes? But to, to, to be able to express love and appreciation and to, to do the best we can and, and to spend the time we can and, and it, as she did. She stayed as long as she felt comfortable with this. But to be able to say as they're leaving, we love you. Thanks for showing up. Thanks for trying and thanks for being here as long as you could. It's a beautiful thing. But, it, but this teaching has gifted me with that perspective. It's not about right and wrong. It's not about fixing anybody. It's about my own consciousness. It's about my own perceptions and shifting and changing that and using the, the, the avatars and the great teachers that have gone before us to inspire us and to, to help model for me and you what's possible. So today, your assignment is to go out and expand your capacity for intimacy because intimacy leads to greater happiness 
the fullness of life and your gifts of friendship and intimacy and support and care and nurturing for one another is as fine a gift as you can provide upon this planet. So thank you so much for your love and support and being here today with us. And so it is.